Water should not catch on fire. Generally speaking, like, how do you even put that fire out? <laughs> like, uh, we're going to pump some water out of the Cuyahoga to spray on top of the Cuyahoga <laughs> to put it out. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians get together to discuss an album from Robert Dimery's list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week, we pick an album at random from that list. We listen to it, we analyze it, we do some deep dives, and ultimately give you our opinions on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die. At the end of the episode, we'll all vote and pick next week's album. Now, if you haven't had time to listen to this week's album, don't worry. We're going to have plenty of clips that will drop in along the way. We'll also have a playlist of all the random stuff that I'm sure we'll reference during the episode. Now, before we get any further, I want to remind you, dear listener, that if you're digging what you're hearing, go ahead and subscribe or like or write us a review on your favorite podcasting platform or better yet, tell a friend. And we've also got an Instagram account that we just set up under the Chop Unlimited, all one word. So if you go hop on Instagram, you can find some uh, some some good content, some some good shit there as well. Now I'm going to throw things over quickly to Rob before we get into the music. It's going to go to Rob for our listener mail. So Rob, I, I think we got some got some stuff in the mailbag there. Yeah, I got a couple things in the old mailbag here, Adam. First one comes from Frankie, writing from Texas. He says, love the podcast, boys. Wanted to write and let you know that I enjoyed the Tusk episode and particularly the three principal songwriter mixes. I've really been digging the McVie cut. Looking forward to more. Boosh. Oh, all right. Oh, all right. It's catching on, boys. I, I think that was Tom's initial theory, right? You've got the three solo albums. Three, the McVie cut is, is the money cut of those three, yes. by the way. Yes. Definitely the money cut. I would have to agree. That's it. Yeah, so go back. Grab that episode, and we linked all three of those playlists in the episode notes. And then we have one more today. Dom from Oakland writes, I've been listening to back episodes of the show all summer. First of all, thank you. And just got to the Rage Against the Machine episode where you all asked if any songs rock as hard as Bomb Track. And I wanted to offer two possible contenders. One is Trickle Down by Mercury Rev, and another is My Iron Lung by Radiohead. Keep up the good work. Well, what do y'all think, boys? I appreciate the notes, Bob. You were wrong. And <laughs> I, we listened, I, I listened to those songs on Rob's recommendation, and there's multiple elements of why Bomb Track rocks continuously throughout. It is unrelenting. And I don't think either of those songs can be classified as unrelentingly rocking. Yeah, I, I would also politely disagree. I think each of those songs that you mentioned has some rocking elements to it, for sure. The Myron Lung kind of starts slow and then gets into a rocking part that always reminds me of that Nirvana song, Heart Shaped Box. Maybe I'm the only one. And Trickle Down has something similar going on. But yeah, Bomb Track rocks from the first second of music, and then it <laughs> transitions into a different kind of rocking as the song continues on. Yeah, there's multiple threads of rocking. It That's is. Right. Uh, I'm I'm gonna piggyback on what the guy said here. That uh, it's a layer I appreciate cake. Appreciate this. Yes, I do <laughs> the think layer though, cake of rock. I think that the 
the comment about I don't know if it's possible for a song to rock harder than this was actually about killing in the name and not bomb track. Oh, um, I believe okay. that, that was the one that I I because I think I made the comment that I don't know if it's scientifically possible to rock harder <laughs> than killing in the name, and I will stand behind that absolutely. Killing in the name rocks more than bomb track, and bomb track fucking rocks. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, there you have it. Well, thank you, everyone. Again, we appreciate the listener mail. Throw some along to us, and we'll we'll be sure to read it on the air here and give you our jackass opinions. So this week may be our first foray into a genre called orchestral pop, as we've been listening to Randy Newman's 1972 release called Sail Away, an album that Rolling Stone called a major achievement in the new era of post-60s music. So we're going to jump right into the music, and then we'll come back with our normal introductions and our quick tweet-length reviews. So here it is, the opening track called Sail Away. In America, you get food to eat. Won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American Ain't no lion or tiger, ain't no mama snake All right, so there you have it. Let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Who do we have in the studio today? It looks like we're going to go to Rob first. Hey, it's Rob here. And my short review of Randy Newman's Sail Away is Elmer Fudd tries satire? <laughs> no, how about ever wondered what your, what your least favorite Muppet cutting a bone-dry record of novelty songs might sound like? Look no further. <laughs> Boosh, coming in yeah. hot. Woo. All right. Tom, what do you got? Uh, I don't think I have as good of a tweet length review as Rob does. Uh, my uh, tweet length review is um, it's like Raffi grew up, got some vocal cord trauma and a whole lot of cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. And my review is that it's deep, satirical, sad, contemplative. To get all that packed into a single sitting, I usually have to turn on This Is Us. But Randy Newman saves me 15 minutes and manages to cram in some vaudeville wackiness as well. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, Listen, this was, and I look forward, listeners, to you posting this, to you taking this to the next Randy Newman convention that you attend and (laughs) getting us yelled at thoroughly by the Randy Newman stands of the world. But this was a bit of a tough listen for me. I will say I did soften up to it over the course of the week as I started to really discover the truly deep satirical nature of these songs that was not apparent on first superficial listen, at least not on all the tracks. But man, I yeah, this sounds like 40 minutes of vamping to me. It sounds like they said, Randy, the headliner is not here. We need you to stall. Now, I understand you don't have any prepared material. However... <laughs> One thousand percent. I was picturing a lounge singer who is all of a sudden told that he needs to fill an extra hour. There's here's the thing, though. There's no fat on any of these tracks. I mean, we're talking like the longest track is something like two and a half minutes or something like that. I mean, this is a tight. I think the longest track is uh, 
the second longest track on the on the on the album is 318. Right. I made a note that the second longest track is 318. So I would make the argument that if this is a lounge singer vamping, holy shit, he's coming up with some good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit paradoxical in that way because I did take note that normally on this podcast we're like Guy, songwriters, please edit yourselves. Make the song shorter. Make the album shorter. <laughs> this time it's like, Randy, feel free to write some more, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really have a song yet. You have a pitch for what could be a good song. Mm, yeah. You need to continue. I was put in the mindset of, um, you know, Monty, Monty Python and the Meaning of Life, where they like cut to that really nice restaurant. There's that guy, he's just like playing the piano. He's like, Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it awfully great to have a cock? <laughs> like, it's basically that kind of music throughout. Um, it, it seemed like it belonged at like a correspondence dinner, like the Washington correspondence yeah. dinner. I thought yeah. the same thing. It's yeah. the deficit shuffle yeah, or whatever. Totally. You know? <laughs> yes. Totally. <laughs> this album did grow on me, though, to, to Rob's point. The first time through, I think one of the songs very much sounds like a 1920s guys with top hats, canes, and checkered shirts doing that vaudeville singing, you know, act. And, you know, 10 times, 12 times through the album, because it's only 30 minutes, I started to appreciate it a bit more. Again, echoing Rob's point of actually looking into some of the lyrics I've said it before on the podcast, I'm not a super lyrics guy. And it wasn't until I really started, you know, Googling it a little bit and actually reading them that there's some interesting stuff in here. He doesn't make it that easy for you. So you have that, you have one song right in the middle that I think stands out on first listen. And it was the one I was kind of familiar with in the past political science that feels like it was composed and crafted lyrically. And, and perhaps it's because the subject matter there is so over the top, basically about nuking the entire planet. You're like, oh, <laughs> he must be joking. But I had to kind of discover that. I had to get into his mindset and understand the character of Randy Newman to, get, to really truly understand that he wasn't calling Cleveland an amazing city of life. Right. It took me a little bit of digging into that as well. Wasn't super familiar with the Cuyahoga River. So, now you know, I, I got to tell you, I had the opposite experience Immediately, I was just like, oh, this is just so wry and tongue in cheek. And then repeated listens made it, it just wore on me after repeated listens. I didn't discover this new layer of depth. For some reason, just right away, I was like, okay, I get what you're going for. Give me something else. And then a couple of songs like, uh, you know, Old Man stuck out as a sincere song. I was like, oh, that's that's actually pretty sincere. That's pretty good. But well, yeah, the, I don't think that's sincere at all. Well, I guess we'll get to it, though. That That's the song that I came to a deeper meaning of later. All the other ones, I sort of, I got it kind of right away. And, you know, it's it's okay. It's not terrible. I will say this. I cannot in any way fault the composition of these songs, the orchestral parts, the counter melodies. There's a lot to love there. A lot to love in terms of the interplay between him and the orchestra, his voice and the piano. Does a really great job of that. Um, I kind of got like a little bit of like almost like a New Orleans jazz vibe totally, out of sure. some of these songs, mm -hmm. which he's like comes across as the least New Orleans guy. I, I one of my notes is um, it's like a straight edge Dr. John, which I don't like Dr. John. So I don't that's not a compliment, but that's the vibe that I got from him. I agree with all that. I think the arrangements were really nice and he is credited in the liner notes or at least on Wikipedia with doing those arrangements. So more power to him. But I do sometimes fault the composition because I don't feel like there was, it felt a little underworked 
That would be my complaint. I think that he had a lot of great ideas, and Adam c- called it tight a few minutes ago. It was short, but it did not strike me as tight at all. That's why I made the comment about vamping. Because the songs were so short, because they didn't utilize song devices like like a bridge, and because a lot of <laughs> yeah. the lyrics even just seemed really tossed off, even though they fit the, the general theme, they just seemed like placeholder lyrics that you would go back and rewrite. So definitely a lot of talent, clearly there, but just didn't really feel like you brought it home to me. I know we talk about emoting vocally on this show a lot, and this reminded me of the D'Angelo episode a little bit, which is D'Angelo has his falsetto thing, and he expresses no emotions in it. Randy Newman's just kind of the other way around. He's got this deep kind of strange draw kind of... uh, I won't say warbly, but kind of an old man vibe that the only emotion he ever really gets across is irony, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe sarcasm, but there's no, we'll get to it. I, I think um, when we do talk about that song, old man, that was really one of the only times that I felt like that was somewhat sincere, but a lot of it to your, to, uh, well, I guess to my point is that he just, there's no, there's not a lot of emotions, right? We cannot have a conversation about the Randy Newman album without talking about his voice. <laughs> Who told him he could sing? I don't I don't think he can't sing, but I wonder the first person to hear him, and because he's a great composer, he composes, he writes, it wasn't just like, hey, why don't you just get somebody else to sing? It's a perfectly valid path to take. You you sound like you just got a concussion 20 minutes ago, <laughs> and now you're trying to like read off of a piece of paper or something like that. I it's not a good, it's not a traditionally good voice. Well, I think he was doing that other thing for a he while. He was writing, yeah. Yeah. And, right. and having success. And then, and so another record that's put me in the mind of that we covered here on this podcast was Redheaded Stranger, the Willie Nelson record, which is to say that it kind of sounds like demos to me. Set aside the orchestral arrangements for a moment, but a lot of the undercooked nature of the songs. And similarly, with that kind of very unorthodox delivery and, and song style, and, and they had a, somewhat of a similar career trajectory, that they started out as songwriters, and then somebody said, well, put them in the studio, let's see what happens. So, and admittedly, I love that Willie Nelson record, and I love Willie Nelson generally, and I don't feel any of those feelings here about Randy Newman. <laughs> yeah, Randy Newman, I feel like his voice didn't age. He started off sounding like an old man. Like, like 100%. I, one of his earlier songs... I guess he recorded a version of it, but ultimately gave it to some other artist. And I think he was like 19 when he recorded it. And he's like, he sounds like he's a 60 year old man. It's got that Leon Redbone thing, Mm. which is the same thing. Leon Redbone, when he was like 21, like he just sounded like an old drunk guy. I was listening to this, listening to this with my wife and she was like, Oh, it's not bad. Like what's going on? She's like, it's not bad. Like, I don't hate it or anything like that. It's just not my favorite. She's like, no, it's pretty good. I was like, also bear in mind, he's like 28 years old, 29 years old when this being recorded. She's like, oh, oh no, he doesn't sound like that at all. He sounds like <laughs> he's in his fifties. Like, and he sounds the same way now. So good for him. His voice yeah. is aged Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. So let's jump in a little bit more into our friend Randy Newman here. So Randy was born in 1943, which makes him 78 years old today and 29 when this album was released. He was born to Adele and Irving George Newman, so his mother was a secretary and his father was a doctor. Now, Randy started out young playing an old rusty can for tips on the streets of New Orleans. 
I'm joking. He was born into it in Los Angeles, into one of the most <laughs> prolific musical families ever. So let's trace some of the genealogy here. His uncle was Alfred Newman, one of the most prolific film composers of all time. Alfred wrote over 200 movie scores, won nine Academy Awards. Alfred's brother, Lionel, scored over 30 films and TV series and conducted orchestras for over 200 movies. Another brother named Emil was the music director for over 80 movies. He had a son, David Newman, who scored 100 movies, including Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, his, his son, Thomas Newman, scored 75 movies, including Shawshank Redemption, Wally, Skyfall. His daughter, Maria Newman, is a musician and composer. And finally, we come to Alfred Newman's nephew, Randy Newman. So he uh, he was set up for success pretty early on there. I thought you were going to tell us about the founder of Mad Magazine there. Right. Yeah, right? <laughs> Alfred E. Newman. Yeah, what? Me I knew it was yeah. all tied together. So he did actually grow up between New Orleans and Los Angeles. So if you're getting a little bit of that New Orleans vibe, I suppose potentially, it didn't go a ton into it. They said that he summered there, which tells you about how well say, he yeah, was. I was going to say, his parents had houses in both two cool cities. They're just like, yes. yeah, well, you know, we get tired of LA. We hang out in New Orleans. Yeah. So he went to high school, eventually studied music at UCLA. He started writing music for other people at 17 when he tried to put out a hit in, uh, when he was 18 years old in 62 called Golden Gridiron Boy. You could Google or YouTube this song. It's, it's terrible. It flopped. Uh, no surprise. Uh, and again, in the song, he sounds like a 50-year-old man and he's only 18. So for quite some time, to Tom's point, Newman decided to stick with songwriting. And so he wrote a lot of songs for a lot of other people during the mid to late 60s. During that time, he met a guy named Larry Waroniker and Russ Teitelman, who formed their own little creative circle. And those two guys would ultimately be the producers on this album. I had some other fun things here about just uh, random notables about Randy Newman. So we know that he's most known for the entire Toy Story franchise, right? Probably You've Got a Friend in Me, which is what comes to my mind. Uh, he did the entire Cars franchise. He did the theme to that movie, The Natural, with Robert Redford. Do you guys know that one? Uh, yeah. The baseball guy. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah. That, that was him. Also, so also that movie. parodied on The Simpsons when Homer had to make the bat out of the <laughs> yeah, tree yeah. branch. Yes. Right? <laughs> Uh, he also wrote uh, Mama Told Me Not to Come by Three Dog Night, although that was also covered by a bunch of other people. And I think what may be the uh, the three most impressive pieces of his career, he wrote the three songs that are in the Three Amigos movie. Do you remember that? <laughs> the The actual Three Amigos main song that they sing, My Little Buttercup, that they do in the old tavern saloon, mm. and then this song called Blue Shadows. I obsessively watched... Three Amigos when I was a kid, that's like, I've yeah, watched it a thousand times. So it meant a lot to me, damn it. Here's what I'll say. Comedy is definitely his lane. That's the lane he should stick in. It's, he's got a voice for comedy. Very much like some people have a face for comedy. I've seen pictures of Randy <laughs> Newman. He also has a face for comedy, but he definitely <laughs> has a voice for comedy too. 
Oh, poor Randy. But uh, Randy's doing quite well. I think. He's fine. Yeah, I'm sure he's doing all right. <laughs> yeah. He can he can deal that, with it. That Pixar money is no joke. <laughs> and he's still writing scores to movies. He uh, the most recent one he did was the Marriage Story, or the it was Adam Driver and uh, Scar uh, Johansson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't watch it, but I I assume it's depressing as hell. He has done quite well making lots and lots of scores and making lots and lots of songs and. But he's also that kind of guy that, like, if he never did any of that, he would have been totally fine, too, with a very <laughs> successful family and lineage that he has. And listen, I'm not going to necessarily ding him for that, but he's certainly no Loretta Lynn. Like, it's not a make it or break it type of situation. It allows him to be a little bit more himself. He doesn't have to conform to other things. Like, we talked about it before, Willie Nelson's first album cover He's got the brill cream in his hair and the yeah, suit yeah. on. He's clearly like, I have to fit the mold because if this doesn't work, then I don't know what I'm going to do. Randy Newman kind of got to just do what he wanted to do. And, you know, again, good for him. I'm not necessarily faulting him for that, but it's like Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah, it's great that you're on Seinfeld. You're really funny, but you're also a billionaire, like before all that. So I have a little less respect. So, really? So be- I didn't know that. So believe it or not, audience, I've had this argument with Tom before, and I'm going to object. Many times. I know. That's why I brought it up, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, having a hard Scrabble background is, is one impressive way to come up in this world, certainly. I'm not denying that. And if you are born into some kind of money or advantage, of course, you get, you get more advantages. I totally agree. In other words, it was inherently easier for Julie Louis-Dreyfus to get on first Saturday Night Live and then later on to Seinfeld, etc., and it was easier for her to take those risks. So I'm not denying any of that. And same with Randy Newman. But I do appreciate when people who have been given more take it farther because they also have the ability to sit around and be lazy SOBs. And we know plenty of poor lazy SOBs too. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy to do if you have the wealth, especially generational wealth. And so I do appreciate when anyone kind of just has some get up and go to them. I still think it takes... It takes effort. It takes vulnerability. Now, I'm not really crediting Randy Newman on this particular thread of our longstanding argument, Tom, because I just don't think he's all that impressive or that out there. But I think for someone like Julia Louis-Dreyfus to put herself out there, I think to be a comedian, to be a woman in comedy, all that stuff, you know, it takes a lot of vulnerability. Yeah, she had advantages, definitely. But she got out there and did a lot. I can deny that. I think that part of what maybe my argument in this particular instance is that a guy like Randy Newman probably would have conformed more if he didn't have a safety net that I'm positing that he had. I don't know. Maybe his dad was a total dick. It was like, you get nothing. Um, it's also possible. But I I give people a little bit more credit when they are themselves in a non-traditional way and they don't have anything to fall back on. They just believe in it all that much. Versus when somebody's like, I, I'm going to be myself, but I have something to fall back on. There's a lot of homeless people like that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, hey. I hear you. I hear you. All right, gents. So uh, if it sounds good, we can start diving into our focus list. Sounds good. Let's do it. Cool. All right. So let's let's jump back into Sail Away. We'll give this another spin and then we'll we'll come back and get your thoughts on this title track. In America, 
take care of his home and his family is a monkey in a monkey tree You're all gonna be an American Sail away Sail away We will cross the mighty ocean in the Charleston Bay Alright, what'd you think? I gotta admit, it totally slipped by me until just a couple hours ago that this was about slave trade. It was like two days ago with me that I finally looked at it, or I was reading a review. It might have even been uh, a Rolling Stone review, and they talked about how it was written from the perspective of the American dream as promised to slaves from the slave traders, which just blew my mind. It was a very interesting i'll say interesting take on on the topic covered multiple times by the way in in the years to come which i i thought was really interesting as well yeah by noted racists i think well Ra- <laughs> wait Rachel- they covered it <laughs> no <laughs> now with racism uh ray charles etta james linda ronstadt gladys knight they all did covers of this notably uh bobby darren covered this Bobby Darren is the guy, uh, 1958 bubblegum pop. Splish, rock and roll. splash, I was taking a bath. Run yeah. around, Sue, please, yeah. guys. Come right. On. <laughs> Sorry. So Randy Newman noted that in Bobby Darren's version that he missed the satire. And he didn't think Bobby really <laughs> understood it, saying that, I don't think he understood it. He did it like it was a happy song about coming to America. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Bobby. Right away, I was like, oh, these have to be just incredibly wry lyrics. Not based upon the slave trade part, based upon the fact that it was in 1972. And it's like, every man can be free and free to protect his family. I'm like, yeah, that's not true for like a really good percentage of America at that point. But okay. And then, yes, I got deeper into it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is, hmm. It's good. I'm, I'm going to make a couple of notes that are non-lyric based here that really struck sure. out to me. I thought that the orchestral arrangement could have stood on its own minus even any lyrics. I think the orchestral arrangement just by itself was really good. I thought it could have stood on its own piano and orchestra. I also thought that you could take the orchestral arrangement out and it could just be a piano song piano mm-hmm. and voice and it would have worked just as well maybe not just as well but I, I also thought that it was it would have been pretty good it's a pretty strong song in terms of composition overall yeah i agree with that i wrote i wrote that about a couple of the other or at least one of the other songs that it could have stood without lyrics just based on the orchestral arrangement that it sounded like score the score to a film yeah i i noticed that throughout through a lot of these i guess i had that in my head understanding that that was his background so that all the orchestra stuff and and again to tom's point the the composition is nice because it opens with just horns. The piano theme, right? There's like this little melody that he's doing on the piano. That comes in in verse two, along with strings. At this point now, the horns are gone. And then verse three, it's just piano. Strings get added. It's, 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 a, nice, it's a nice mixture of keeping, I mean, the same couple chords interesting for whatever it is, three, three and a half minutes. Yeah, especially when you're adding orchestral parts on top of a song, you basically just have to write multiple melodies. 
that all sort of have to work independently. It's hard to write just one compelling melody, but if you can write multiple compelling melodies over the same, again, very simple chords, um, it, it shows a level of work that was put into the song, which Rob, you, you mentioned earlier that he seemed like he was kind of vamping on stuff and lyrically and melody wise, like vocal melody wise, I could definitely see the vamping aspect there. But I think when you throw in these counter melodies that he has built on top of it, 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 this is a worked piece. He definitely put in the work on it. This is one of the standout songs on the album for me, particularly. So I can't say it's necessarily true for all of the songs that he worked it to the point that you get multiple compelling parts over it. But in this one, I thought it, it landed very well. Yeah, I, th- I think when it works, it works well. And learning that he was the arranger on this album, definitely, and I learned that very late in the week, a couple hours ago, in fact, that softened me up quite a bit more. I thought that for a track one, side one, this was a pretty good hint at what you were going to see on the album, which is kind of wry, sarcastic, ironic lyrics with a lot of orchestra. No harmony. By the way, zero harmony on this album. No drum. Well, I'm sorry. I think five of the 12 songs has percussion and I'll call it percussion because there are some where it might just be like a single snare hit or, or, or something. So it's not this is not rock and roll, right? There's a reason why they called this orchestral pop. I did see that this beat Gang of Four on Pitchfork's best guitar albums of the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) One of my notes on here is I don't think that there's an actual drum stick used on this entire album. It's just brushes. There's no like snare crack ever coming in like, yeah, So funny little tidbit is that the guy that's credited with drums on this, Jim Keltner, had no arms. No, <laughs> sorry no that's terrible he's, no he's a, he's a studio master so i'm really surprised that they got such a pro in there in fact the song you'll know him from is josie the steely dan tune oh, really yeah so wow. good legit dude yeah. yeah i was one of my notes is did we just use up our entire allotment of drums on the last uh, album, Delouse in the Comatorium, for the next week? <laughs> we're out of slams. Yeah. We're out of you know single, double stroke, triple stroke fills, all that yeah. stuff. We're no gonna... sound manipulation on this right. one either. <laughs> Definitely not. This song was also exciting too because there was a a racial slur that was new to me that I saw. I think it's in the third verse, so that was exciting. I had to Google that. I'm not going to say it. If you're really curious, go listen to the song. I really, uh, I didn't pick up on that. What, what racial slur we're we talking about here? Adam? Have you ever heard of a apparently it's a British, it's a, an offensive British term for non-whites that was used in all the places that the Brits went and took slaves from. That's like 160 countries right. out of 184 <laughs> countries or something like that. So, yeah. All right. So we're going to go out of order here on our focus list. But next up, we're going to dive into a song called Burn On, which is actually Track two, side two. Rising on the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland to the lake. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River, rolling.
Finally, it's the Cleveland song I was hoping for. Um, you know, really gets across the feeling of walking through downtown Cleveland. <laughs> well, in 1970, I think it probably would have, right? Or maybe it's no different than today. This is know. a city that needed fating. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's why I can't believe that you guys listened through to this song. And when he starts talking about like it's the city of lights and like... I was like, how do you not immediately be like, oh, you're fucking shitting on Cleveland? I of wasn't course. even really listening. <laughs> I wasn't you know listening I mean? either. The yeah. I go. This was this whole record was remarkably ignorable for me for the first several <laughs> listens. <laughs> I just like I blacked out. I was like, oh, it's done. All right. Oh, it's going on. 30 yeah. minutes later. Oh, what the hell? Yeah, this is uh so references the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. Um which had famously caught on fire in the summer of 69. Because um, <laughs> apparently Cleveland was a shithole, right? It well, was just like industrial waste everywhere. Was. So here's the funny thing. I read a Smithsonian article about this, which said <laughs> the Cuyahoga River actually caught fire 12 times, but nobody cared <laughs> until the summer of 69, the last time it caught on fire. How does your river catch on fire 12 <laughs> yeah. times? For, for Gen Z, that's, that's considered bad. That's a bad thing. <laughs> yes. Water should not catch on fire, generally speaking. Like, how do you even put that fire out? <laughs> like, uh, we're going to pump some water out of the Cuyahoga to spray on top of the Cuyahoga to put it out. <laughs> uh, this is like pre-EPA days, right? Yeah, I think that I think that this is one of the driving factors to the yeah. EPA, st- you know, becoming a a, a thing in the uh, under the mid seventies. People who would never guess President Nixon created really? the EPA. Yes, back wow. in the day, Republicans actually cared if you murdered all of the living things in your environment. <laughs> <laughs> what a time! This is literally like one of the worst presidents as a person in the history of the United States. It's like Nixon, Andrew Jackson. These are the people that he's in the company with. And he, even he was still like, listen, it's probably not that great that your rivers catch on fire. We on should fire, maybe do yeah. something about that. Just something. Tom, I probably should have realized the sarcasm when he actually mentions the oil barge winding down the Cuyahoga River and then saying, burn on, big river, burn on. Yeah. But again, I, I didn't really put it together. There was a, one Reddit thread was people talking about how they love this song and and old folks, i.e., you know. 50 are saying this is this song's about how terrible cleveland was like go google cuyahoga river because i guess some of the yeah a lot of yeah it's cleveland a lot of these references could go over your head this guy is the dennis miller of 70s piano (laughs) (laughs) which itself is (laughs) it's an old reference yeah that reference is gonna go over everybody's head by the way Unless they happen to catch him on like uh, Monday Night Football when that brief stint that he was in, in like twelve years ago. It's evergreen, it's evergreen. Uh, so you know, Tom and I have quite a history with the city of Cleveland. So we have a lot of feelings. Really? About it. Yeah, it was our first. Well, I know you guys did right. You did a road trip out there first, when you were what, like seventeen or something. First time away from home for me. First road trip. We went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and also a Pez convention in like a, a downtown Hyatt 
lobby or whatever. We were real cool, by the way. I was going to say, I assume you stayed virgins through this whole experience. Oh, yeah. And then speaking of virginity, then I, we later hosted a bachelor party of a close friend in one Cleveland city and had the most wholesome interaction with strippers where we invited them to our house to play video games with us and we served them homemade lasagna and they were very confused. I always thought that the funniest part of that entire interaction was the gigantic bouncer that they brought with them. And I had to go down and meet them and then like hand them the cash before they'd come in the elevator to come up to the condo that we were renting. The guy's like, 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 no, seriously, no funny stuff, guys. Like, seriously. And he gets out and he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to have some on. of this lasagna. You guys, you <laughs> nerds, whatever. Just psh, please. Everything's fine. He immediately was like, my night is off. I'm just going <laughs> to chill and hang out, eat some lasagna, play some NFL blitz. Everything's great. <laughs> the least threatening group of dudes ever. So do we love Cleveland or do we hate Cleveland? It's hard to tell, actually. I believe that when we were in Cleveland for that bachelor party, there was a triple homicide within sight of the condo that we were at. Oh, my God. There was just the most cop cars I've ever seen in my entire life in the East Flats, which is in the the song about Cleveland, says they say it looks like a Scooby Doo ghost town, which is one of the most accurate <laughs> depictions of that. But uh, yeah. Cleveland sucks. This <laughs> song, however, it's got a nice like oompa Bavarian sound to it. Like I, I could kind of get down on it. But one comment that I will make on this song and again on other songs is that his songs just all sort of end. There's not really any endings. Yeah, that's yeah, that's where I take compositional umbrage. Is there's not a, there's not really an arc to these tunes. They just kind of go for a while, then meander. They have some parts to them, and then they end, and they end pretty quickly too. He could have done a super chorus. It, it would have been pretty easy to write write a little bit more. This is one where I I did notice the arrangement in particular, and I thought it would have worked without lyrics. And yeah, it's a kind of a theme for everything with me on this record, where I appreciate some of this songwriting and maybe even some of the composition and certainly the arrangement intellectually but i can't really say this was enjoyable no this was water off a duck's back to me i i, I agree with what you're saying is that I, li- I would listen to the album and be like oh it's over okay i feel like i didn't even listen to a moment of this let me go back and listen to it again <laughs> which is why i listened to it so many damn times because sure. you know i would just zone out almost immediately and none of the songs because they're so short very rarely did they have that one chord or that one change that made me be like whoa really doing something different there i'm 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 paying attention now everything was kind of just nice chords on a piano a lot of notes a lot of four note chords and then the song's over okay let's move on speaking of moving on let's let's kick this thing right along to the next track on our focus list political science no one likes us i don't know why May not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. They don't respect us, so let's surprise them. Drop the big one, pulverize the ages crowded. Europe's too old, Africa's far too Yeah, this is my favorite song 
This jumped out on the first listen. This is one of the. This is really the only thing that perked my ears up on the first listen. It was in part because I had heard the song before. I've heard a lot of these songs before, though, to be honest. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they might have just been playing on the radio. I've certainly heard the title track before, but anyway. But this song perked up. It felt well composed. It felt compositionally tight in its cleverness. I understand now that a lot of the other ones are clever and wry as well, but this felt a little more thought out, planned out. So to, yeah, to me, to me, it was the standout. It's definitely a bit of a novelty song, but definitely, it's like an it's like a bad version of an Elvis Costello song that's making the same statement, but Elvis Costello would do it in a lot better way than the two and a half minute. I'll call I'm sorry, two minute. I'll call this a ditty uh, that made me think. Oh yeah, this is why he scores cartoon movies. I, no, it's funny. I actually put it on there that this could be on the Animaniacs. Yeah. This seemed like an Animaniacs. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. It, ha- it has that sense of humor, actually. The South yeah. America mm-hmm. stole our name line is yeah. Yeah, it's very cartoony. And, you know, we got to save Australia. We don't want to hurt the kangaroos, but we'll put up a surfing like complex right, They have good whatever. surfing, and we'll yeah. do a uh, America-themed amusement park or something like that, or America Town or something. They've got surfing, too. You could have put any word in there. That just feels so tossed off to me. The word two huh? or surfing, surfing or surfing to surfing. Oh, but surfing. The, but that's his whole, his whole bit is just, it, it makes you feel like he's just making it up as he goes along. And that's, you know, oh, if this is clever for something you just made up, yeah. not necessarily clever for something that you workshopped, but just clever for something you just made up. Woo. But it's very good. It's very good for my favorite uncle drunk at the piano after Thanksgiving. <laughs> the one song that he knows that's a real killer. Your uncle has some head trauma too. Like <laughs> it, it took me a lot to get over his voice and I honestly didn't quite get over it by the end of the, the album or even the 15th listen to the album. It's... I don't know. It sounds like he's got like cotton balls in his mouth. Like, what's going on? He doesn't. He doesn't sound like a smart man. That's the only way that I can say it, based upon his delivery. He doesn't sound like a smart man. I'm sure he's very intelligent. Part of the reason I know he's very intelligent is because the bridge that he puts together for this song is extraordinarily well constructed. Building all American amusement park there. They got surfing too. I love good bridges. I love good chord choices on bridges. One of the reasons why I love Carol King. Carol King writes killer bridges, but the best way to write a bridge is you take chords that are kind of in the song but not quite and so it gives you this sort of sense of movement but not a departure it's a very very well done bridge should have worked harder than the lyrics worked hard on the bridge should have worked a little harder than the lyrics i think this is the most successful song overall i'm sticking to that and i also like the piano this is the one where the piano playing reminded me the most of new orleans style piano playing also can we uh, let's give a compliment i'll give a compliment to the title it's a clever title. Yes. Yeah. It's not called Drop the A-Bomb or something like that. All right. So that was political science. Let's kick things right along here. We're going to hit what I consider, you guys can tell me I'm wrong, 
It's one of the saddest songs I've ever heard. Maybe it's sappy sad. Maybe it's over the top sad. This one is called Old Man. Everyone has gone away. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? No one cares enough to stay. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? You must remember me, old man. I know that you can if you try. So just open up your eyes, old man. Look who's come to say goodbye. Listen, it took it took me a while to get this song because his voice does not lend itself to sincerity. His voice sounds like a joke. It just does. And, you know, he made it work throughout his career, but his voice does not sound like it's sincere. But I think that overall, this is a pretty beautiful and sad song. And, you know, going through the lyrics, I did not get the wry sarcasm. Maybe Rob, you're. You're you're giving me a look like you think this is a. I'm surprised. Song. I have two alternate reads of this song. The first read. Ooh, okay. The first read is a son coming to talk a last bit of shit on his dying father with lines like "No one cared enough to stay. No one came to cry, old man." Meaning, like, I'm not sorry that you're dying. Won't be no God to comfort you. You taught me not to believe that lie. I, that could just be a statement of truth, but that sounds a little accusatory you don't need anybody nobody needs you you could argue that's just about death i guess but it sounded a little like a son poking at a guy who wasn't so nice to him as a father Hmm. even if it was that's still sad as shit like rob (laughs) let's let's explore that rob what what do you have to relate to your feelings of your father in this song here I got that it's a bitter old man who's dying and he's like complaining about everybody else in his life that has not come to, uh, you know. But it's directed at the to, old man. It's definitely someone else coming to say goodbye to the old man, right? So my alternate read that was my take, is yeah. a canny son creeping up to kill the old man to get his inheritance. <laughs> oh. Can you hear me? Okay. Can you hear Can me? You hear let's, me? <laughs> but let's explore that, Rob. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I did not take it as that. I took it as an old man who was making statements about how he pictures everybody else thinking. It's this sort of like, you know, I'm in my deathbed and I'm like putting words into the mouths of the people that I think should have come and been nice to me or whatever. And I'm writing them off as, oh, fuck you guys. You know, like, blah, 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 blah. You're probably all sitting there like, oh, what? Nobody gives a shit about you, old man. Yeah, fuck you. I'm dying. Don't cry. We could also explore that too. (laughs) Everybody dies. That's what a hitman says, Tom. (laughs) No, Rob, true hitmen, true hitmen say nothing. Okay. (laughs) This is his inner monologue. Okay. It could be any of those. You're right. I mean, maybe that makes it a good song that we have three possible interpretations. I think they're all really sad. I think the music is really haunting and minor and, and beautifully sad. And it ends on this chord that is just perfect. Because also, this is a two minute and 42 second song. 
This is a short song. They're all short songs, but like they are really short. There's an orchestral break at 48 seconds. That it struck me as like, this is something out of like old classic standards, like early Sinatra or something mm-hmm. like that. Like the the stuff that was written by professional songwriters that were like, I am, you know, Irving Berlin or something like yeah. that. And just I'm writing this, you know, orchestral composition. I thought it was really well done. There's one other part that gave me a Sinatra feel, oddly enough. And not on the arrangement, on the delivery style. So it it took me a while to like it. Like right at a minute and 43 seconds, there's a line he delivers. He's like, you want to stay? I know you do. You want to stay? I know you do. The vocal melody has been kind of in lockstep with the right hand of the piano for most of the song. And he gets off of the cadence of the right hand of the piano for just that one line. And then he kind of comes back in the lockstep. And for a while, I was just like, oh, it was just a mistake. That was dumb. But after many re-listens, I realized that it was a very deliberate delivery choice. And I really liked it a lot. It, again, it gave me that delivery man feel. It's the Dean Martin behind the beat kind of feel to the delivery. And I definitely don't think of Randy Newman as the delivery man when it comes to his vocal stylings, but that's one of those ones that I was like, yeah, it's pretty tasteful. All right. We're going to keep moving along here. The next song on our focus list tells the story of a John who is barking orders <laughs> at his sex worker. This is called, <laughs> you can leave your hat on. Baby, take off the coat. slow. Sorry, those were the vibes that I, I got from this song. I, I know there's a Joe Cocker version. I never really liked that one. I always thought it was kind of corny. It's 80s Joe Cocker. We should clarify. It's 80s Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker well, in the late 60s and early 70s, kind of unimpunable. Like any song he puts in his mouth sounds awesome. Right. <laughs> All right, I'll give you that. But I think the reason why it didn't work is because this song just sucks. <laughs> this is just a bad song. Right? Am, am I am I crazy? I don't know why people love this song. I my note is, is this a smash song? I know Tom Jones did a version of it, so I guess it's kind of a smash song, but uh, first of all, sexualized Randy Newman is never going to work for me ever <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, literally, my note is insert Randy Newman impression having sex here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, no, don't stop. Keep doing it. Oh, you're the best. Like, come on. There's there's a line where he says something like, uh, take off your dress. Oh, yes, yes. And it was just creepy because I'm picturing him being like, yeah, yes. In that creepy Randy Newman voice. Come back here. Stand on this chair. That's right. 
raise your arms up in the air, shake them. Is that like, what kink is that? I, it's like, I just want to see a woman standing on a chair, waving her arms like an inflatable tube man. Like, that's what I'm paying for. <laughs> but you have to tell, you have to instruct her to do that though. Well, like, no, nobody's so going to do that on their own. It's like, here's part of my seduction. I stand on a chair and go, woo. <laughs> the hokey pokey is integral to my <laughs> getting off. Uh, my other note is that this this song is a scant three minutes and 18 seconds long, and it is too long. I wrote, yeah, I wrote boring as hell for this one. L- a low point amongst some low points, probably. Definitely a low point on the focus list. And 70s sitcom theme vibes. They finally got a band together, but it just sounds corny. It's, all, it's like Barney Miller or something. My only other note was that I think this song might be serviceable if it was double time and done by Motley Crue. Those are the only <laughs> that's the only potential that this song you could actually listen to it and get into it. Even Motley Crue could not make this song drip sex. There is nothing about this that could drip sex. You can leave your head on. It's so not sexy. Like I get he's trying to get out of his lane a little bit, but he doesn't get far enough out of his lane to make me believe that this is a departure. And it's not sonically different, like that sonically different from the rest of the album. It's This was by far my least favorite song on the album. Every time I listened to this, I was just like, this is cringeworthy. Next. And repetitive and really dumb. Even if you made this tight, it would be dumb. Fuck you, Randy Newman. Yeah. Just going to make this clear. (laughs) I wonder which way this is going to go. All right, we're going to round things out here with God's Song, which does actually end the album. King slew him. Seth knew not why. If the children of Israel supposed to multiply Why must any of the children die So he asked the Lord And the Lord said Man means nothing He means less to me Lowliest cactus flower, the humblest yucca tree, chases round this desert. He thinks that's where I'll be. I really like this song. I thought this song was awesome. I'm a big fan of this song. It is. I mean, I'm a bitter atheist, so it's right up in my in my lane <laughs> of sure. subject matter. But man. If he hadn't have knocked it out of the park on those Pixar movies pre-Disney acquisition, there was no way that they would let him continue to be the voice of Pixar with this song with in this his song resume. Floating yeah. around in his catalog. What? Oh my God. Yeah. How we laugh in heaven at the prayers you offer me. That's a great line being delivered by God. That's that's fantastic. I really do like this song a lot. It's a really good song. It's a continuation of the atheist thing that there's another song on here uh, i think it's what's well, on old man he talks about you know there's no man, god to comfort you you know and there's one called he gives us all his love which really comes off like a praise god song 
but it's basically saying, uh, you know, old people dying miserably, children dying miserably, but don't forget he gives us all his love. So he kind of, he kind of initiates that theme early on the first side. And then he ends the album with this pretty straight ahead, uh, blatant, uh, tune here about atheism, or at least maybe not about atheism, but just in the eyes of a God that, that he thinks is terrible. It's almost worse if he believes in God and then and writes <laughs> these words about God. He's like, I believe in you. You're just a bastard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. This song didn't really start. I mean, I get what you guys are saying. I agree. The atheism, the clever atheism is nice. I suppose I'm a little past that phase in my life, but this song's just boring. <laughs> like I would listen to all these songs done by a, another artist like tomorrow, but I can't see myself ever listening to this song again. I particularly liked there is one chord that every time I listen to it, it stuck out to me. It's like right at 245. It's the second time they get to, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, I burned down your city. And he hits this F sharp minor, which is like the first time that that F sharp minor has appeared in the song. There's like an F sharp before. It's a really tasty chord. It's one of those flavor chords, a little MSG sprinkled over the track. And the first time that I heard the song, it struck out, it stuck out to me. And I was like, oh, that's a really great chord choice. And I'm not going to make any statement about other great chord choices on this album. On the, uh, sorry, on this song. But that one in particular made me raise my head up, which I almost never in any other point in the album had to raise my head up and be like, oh, what was that? I have to look that chord up. That was one of the ones that sonically spoke to me. And then, yeah, the lyrics, they do speak to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm still not over my anger at having to go to Catholic school until high school, until uh, you know college. All right. So there's no God. Let's vote. Uh, we're. <laughs> I thought that this was an odd Odd choice to end the album on, but I did like that the opening of it feels like a church dirge. I don't know if that's a thing, but it definitely had old school church vibes. And that opening, the opening couple seconds on the piano, just the the quick progression there kind of put me back in the pew. So I appreciated that. Getting through the album up to this point, I wasn't necessarily expecting like a big drum heavy rocking tune but this this one brought it in real real <laughs> low and slow and kind of the album kind of oozed out the door versus even just shutting the door you tell me this isn't the album's heart of the sunrise it's not the <laughs> <laughs> all right so like we do every week folks we're going to throw things around the room here to get everyone's vote on whether or not you need to hear this before you die let's send it over to rob first uh, Randy Newman is, he's a good songwriter. I will concede that. And I understand why he's considered in the pantheon of the songwriting tradition. I think he might be worth looking at from that angle, but I can't in good conscience recommend that you spend some of your precious time here on earth listening to an album that just kind of bored me to tears. Tom. This album ain't that good. <laughs> This album ain't that good. Save yourself. Keep the record on the shelf. Cause this album ain't that good. <laughs> it's another hit, Randy. 
<laughs> so that's a no. All right. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take the other side here. I think that given that this album is only 30 minutes, and there are albums that we've listened to where two tracks on the album line up to about 30 minutes. I think this is worth your time to get into an experience more orchestral pop from a guy with a pretty long and storied career and to experience some of his, I'll say, uh, composing and orchestral chops. So I'm going to say yes on this, but it doesn't matter because we got two no's tonight. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Mr. Newman, along with your uh, the rest of your kin who are, <laughs> I don't know, scored 10,000 movies or something. You'll be just fine. So we're going to throw things over to Tom with the Albinator to get our homework assignment for next week. All right. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you sticking with us. The most exciting part of the podcast. Find out what we're going to be doing next week. So let's get that old Albinator out. We're going to spin that wheel. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... You know what? I actually kind of see a through line on this. Uh, New York Dolls by New York Dolls. There's a weird singer. Blah, 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 blah. It's kind of through line here, right? You guys are going to shake your head. I don't know the New York Dolls. I've never heard What's a note the... of this. Oh, okay. I, I don't feel so dumb. I know you have heard at least one of the songs off of this because my first exposure to this album was at Louder Studios. Up in Grass Valley, one of those Burt Sugarman's Midnight Express. Oh, uh, okay. Well, sure, I yeah. can believe that. Yeah. 70s rock-ish. Yeah. They are basically like a bunch of dudes in early version of drag doing punk songs. Huh? Yeah, they're like glam punk, right? I, oh, I know the guy. Very glam. The lead singer is the dude, the cab driver from Scrooged. Yes. He's also uh, feeling hot, hot, hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's that guy. Buster Poindexter. That's yeah. about as far as I know. Adam, I'm just going to throw a prediction out there. You're going to hate this album. <laughs> oh, my God. You're going to hate this album so much. I really look forward to hearing how much you hate this album. All right. Well, now you, you set me up. Now I got to come come in hot with some with some good uh, some good lines. All right. I'll start writing them now. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> All right, so there you got your homework assignment for next week, everyone. New York Dolls, the album is New York Dolls. Don't forget, everybody, if you're digging what you're hearing, you can drop us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Let us know what we got wrong, especially if you're from Cleveland. Please let us know how amazing your city is, because I feel like we may have been slightly unfair to our friends in Cleveland. So please let us know just how much Cleveland does in fact rock despite Drew Carey. You can't talk about low property values. Can't talk about how easy it is to buy a house there because that's invalid. Invalid. <laughs> it's not a good argument. Do please tell us your predictions for the Browns this season though. <laughs> <laughs> so we can laugh at Man. them. <laughs> oh, oh, poor Cleveland. And on that note, we're going to close things out everyone for 1001 album complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. Boosh. 